0: Yeah, I've enjoyed personally being able to dive deeply into the Ten Commandments. You know, a lot of times you think of that, it's pretty simple, and it's just straightforward. And and what we found throughout the series is that it's not just teaching moral rules, but it's teaching these incredible truths, these foundational principles that, that should help us literally understand not only our lives, but even our culture. And so this morning, we've come to the, uh, the, the last, the 10th ten, the of the commandments, and we're going to be looking at it this week and next week, and, and uh, it's given to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and it's, again, very direct. Many of you are, may be familiar with it, but it is Exodus 20, 17, simply, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And so this command against coveting, and we look forward to being able to dive into what God is teaching this morning. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the things that are here that you continue to teach and challenge me on. Father, I pray now that that your spirit would speak. Father, it's such a relevant uh, passage and principle to our our culture and our time. Father, I pray that that you would speak through me and in spite of me, Father, help us to hear what your heart is. And that somehow through an imperfect man that you would speak the perfect truth of your heart, of your word. And Father, help us to each have hearts that are open to hear and to receive and to respond to what you would call us to this morning. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The commandment is very direct. You shall not covet, right? We get that. And, but what does it mean? I mean, if we look at the commandments right before it, they're pretty direct, you know, don't murder. We know what that means. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't and honor your parents. And, but what does it mean to not covet? Now, if asked, most of us may be able to give a definition of the word covet, but when's the last time that you use the word covet in a sentence? It's not an idea that we really talk about. It's not a concept that we really think of that. In fact, if we look at it, it... it, it first glance, it seems to be different than all the other commandments because all the other commandments really are talking about an action, something we're to do or something we're not to do. You know, you shall not murder. Don't do this. But coveting isn't an action. It's a thought or a feeling. And so is it just about God telling us not to think certain things? And if it's only a thought, how important is it? And then, and if it's just a thought or a feeling, how do we know if we are actually doing it or not, if we're breaking the commandment? Now, I think somebody would give even a simple definition what coveting is, and, and probably the simplest definition I would hear is, well, you shouldn't desire something that other people have. But even if we take that definition, well, how clear is it that we understand that that's a sin? I don't know how many of you spent some time in the mall, maybe this past week, Friday, Saturday, and Well, isn't just going through them all, going and looking at things you don't have and thinking about the things that you want that you don't have. So is that coveting? Is it wrong to do that or to look through a a catalog? See, even when we look at this, I think it's easy to to downplay the significance of this. And because it doesn't seem to be at the same level of foundational truth of murder or adultery or these other things. But I'll let you know, I'm just gonna mention this briefly, What we're going to see is the more that that I really dive into this passage, this, this commandment, the more I realize it isn't by any means the least of the commandments. In reality, it's the commandment that sums them all up. It's, in a sense, the capstone commandment. Now, that's what we're going to really get into next week. We're going to really dive into how this is kind of the summation of all the Ten Commandments and how it fits in with all the others. But even before we get there, we've got to start by saying, what is coveting? And is it always wrong? Is it, is it always bad to you know, desire something you don't have? Even as a parent, I thought about this. When my kids were younger, they would at times say, well, I really want this. And at times we would say, okay, you want that? Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna help you get, you know, get some jobs and do extra work and save your money and, and try to get them to save up to buy the thing that they want. And so great, you saved the money, you showed responsibility. Now, is that teaching coveting? because I'm teaching them how to get what they want and they don't have? What is coveting? There's a problem even just defining the idea because we can talk about it and we kind of know it's wrong but we're not even really sure. And even as we think about it, you realize that it's really not something that culturally we would generally see as sinful. In fact, if you look at our culture, we oftentimes promote coveting, we celebrate it. If you want to see that, Hey, turn on the TV, you have all kinds of ads. Turn on the radio, all kinds of ads. Go to social media, bombarded with ads. You get catalogs this time of year mailed to you, and they're all saying, here's stuff that you don't have that you should want. And, and not only that, but when we look at what most advertising says now, most advertising isn't saying, here's something that you need and our product will help meet that need. Now, most advertising is coming and going for your heart and saying, here's something that you don't know about and you should need it, you should want it. If you buy our product, it's not going to meet a need, it's gonna make you happy, it's gonna make you more content, it's gonna make your life better. Even to see the, um, an illustration of this, those who've been around a while know that periodically I'll talk about VeggieTales or some, you know, VeggieTales, Ultimate Kids Programs, great, you know, great teaching truth in a fun way, and, um, and, and one of VeggieTales' first shows dealing with Christmas was this show called The Toy That Saved Christmas. And in that, you had the bad guy, Mr. Nezer, was trying to sell his new toy, Buzzsaw Louie. You know, what's better to give a kid than a toy with a buzzsaw on it? And, uh, and he created this ad to sell Buzzsaw Louie. Now, in this ad, it, it is all exaggeration, but it's all exaggeration of a truth to make a point. So, let me show you this clip from the classic Christmas film, The Toy That Saved Christmas.
1: What is it? It's got a button! Push it, push it! Say, kids, have you got the don't know what I want for Christmas blues? Well, if I know anything about toys, and you know I do, I know just what you're looking for. You want a toy that's fun. You want a toy that's cute. But most of all, you want a toy with a fully functional buzzsaw built into its right arm. That's right. You want Buzzsaw Louis. Cool, huh? But wait, there's more. Bunsar Louie also knows the true meaning of Christmas. All you have to do is press his nose. Christmas is when you get stuff. You need more toys. Just as soon as your parents phone in and order Bunsar Louie, one of our trained patrons will deliver him right to your door. So take it from me, Mr. Nezzer, I mean Santa Claus, and my little elf helper. Look at me, I'm an elf. You just won't be happy until your parents get you a Buzzsaw Louie, the only toy with a working buzzsaw, and the true meaning of Christmas. Billy has more toys than you. (laughs) I don't know, but he has more toys than me. I want a Buzzsaw Louie. I want ten on Louis! Because that's the true meaning of Christmas.
0: Whee! <laughs> <laughs> I love that video. You know, even this idea that it's something you didn't know exists, you see the ad and say, I need it. And, and again, it's exaggerated, but that's exactly what we do. Or I love the line, you know, Billy has more toys than me. Who's Billy? I don't know, but he has more toys than me. And, and you know, you look at that and you laugh, but that's not that far from the truth for us as adults. Because oftentimes we look at somebody and we're, we're happy until we see somebody that has more than us, and suddenly we're not happy anymore. And, and the spirit of advertising is something that celebrates that, that fosters that. And so even if you, as an example of how bad that's become, think of how even our understanding of Thanksgiving weekend has changed over the last couple decades. Thanksgiving is this wonderful holiday that, that our country has celebrated for 170 years as a way of saying, let's set aside this day to remember how God has blessed us, to be grateful, to be thankful. But yet over the last you know, several decades, the weekend is, is, let's get past the Thanksgiving day and eating a lot and get to the real part of the weekend, which is all about Black Friday. And, and we're going to go through that, and we're going to go out shopping, and we're going to put the whole weekend around trying to not be thankful, but get more. How can we get as much stuff as possible? And it's not only about the advertising and getting stuff, more stuff, you know, material things. We can be covetous in, in that we, material not, or that we uh, have, have a covetous spirit towards non-material things as well. So we can covet other people's appearance, or their popularity, or their work success, or their relationships. And just as advertising is all about trying to get more stuff, the material things, I think it's social media that is at the same time celebrates and promotes covetousness towards the non-material. Some of you might remember back a couple months ago, there was all this news about this person that came out, leaked all these documents. She used to work for Facebook and Instagram. And and she had all these documents showing that, that Facebook and Instagram know how harmful it is to people. So what happened is that you had these platforms that started out as a way to share moments in your life. But it now has become all about comparison. Why? Because if I put something on one of these platforms, I want it to be my best moment. I want it to be the Photoshop picture that makes me look good to other people. But then we compare ourselves to what other people are putting in their best moments, their photoshopped images. And suddenly the real life that I live doesn't seem to match up with what they're portraying on social media. And it's all fostering a spirit of comparison and then of discontentment and coveting because because we don't like our lives. Now what they found out is that these leaks show that Facebook and Instagram know by study that these apps are incredibly harmful to people that it fosters a spirit of anxiety and depression. The more you spend time, the more depressed you're going to get, the more anxious you're going to get. Uh, it's you know, incredibly harmful, especially towards teenagers. But yet, in spite of that, they continue to promote it. Why? Because it's all about making money. They don't really care. They're fostering a spirit of covetousness, which, because it goes against our nature, what God has created us for, it's destructive, both in advertising and social media, whatever it would be. So, you know, part of our struggle in understanding this is when we think of covet, we think of wanting, desire. But coveting is more than just a desire, it's, it's, it's almost too weak of a word, and we, we try to stretch it too long. Coveting is when we have not only desire, but it's a desire that takes over us. At the point where we start to think, I not only want this, but I need it to be happy. I think that, that, that this will somehow bring me greater fulfillment, greater satisfaction. In fact, when if you look back in Exodus and you look at the word that's translated there as covet, it's often covet, but often means, it's translated as lust, and it has the meaning of an intense longing, craving, or desire for something. It's not just a desire, it's something that's an intense craving, a desire for something, this belief that we need it to be happy so that we think about it through the day that we make our life about pursuing this thing. And so if you wanna understand what that is, covetousness and discontentment are kind of almost synonymous. And uh, when I'm discontent with what I have, I will covet what somebody else has. I'm discontent looking inward, I'm covetous looking outward. On the other hand, when I'm content with what I have, I'm not going to be tempted to covet what other people have. So, so you look at this, it's covetousness, it's envy. And um, now if you wanna see how it plays out, you know a great place this is illustrated is go, go volunteer in the toddler's nursery on a Sunday. Now, anybody that has ever been with a group of toddlers, you know that there's nothing that will arouse a child's interest in a toy as much as another child who's having fun with that toy. You can have a toy that has sat on that floor all morning long, and, and, and this child walks past it, has no interest. Suddenly another child comes, picks it up, starts playing with it, starts really enjoying it. And the first child suddenly is incredibly interested and not only wants that toy, thinks they need that toy and it goes from desire to covet to trying to steal it before long. You know, it's just instantaneously. Now you look at that and you say, well, that's a bunch of kids. We're adults. Well, the difference between kids and the adults is they're, we're better at hiding it that's the same thing that happens with us. That's why Instagram, all these things, that's why advertisement, we look at things and and we maybe something that we didn't know exists but suddenly we see it, we see someone else enjoying it, we see it celebrated in an advertisement as being wonderful and next thing you know, we go from seeing it to wanting it, to thinking we need it, to somehow manipulating things to get it. And it's again, it's not just about material things. It can be that we look at a coworker and they get their promotion or a roommate you know, that, that, that falls into a relationship and you're still single, or a friend that goes on the vacation that we could only dream about, next thing you know, we're comparing ourselves to others and we're coveting what they have. And it leads to all kinds of problems, especially in relationships, so that when we think about all these fights and quarrels, a lot of times it's tracked back to the spirit of discontent and covetousness. James talks about this, James chapter 4. Look at what he says. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We want something, we can't have it. We see something else that somebody else has, and, and so suddenly it leads to all kinds of problems. It leads to all other sins. We're going to see more next week. Now, I may read Exodus and say, but you know, Don't covet your neighbor's ox or your donkey, and I don't have a problem with that. Now, generally people today, we're not that interested in ox and donkeys and things like that, but we still covet, again, bigger houses, faster cars, better entertainment. We covet the success that somebody else has. We can covet even their appearance and things like that. All kinds of things. As you try to understand this, it's this longing, but let me even give it another practical definition, one that maybe we can relate to as an illustration. Another way to look at covetousness is it's a hunger. It's a hunger that longs to be satisfied. See, when you think about that, discontentment is a hunger. It's it's hunger for an appetite. It's got an appetite that longs to be satisfied. And while we think of hunger for food, it's a need. I need food to be, you know, to live, ultimately. The hunger that I feel through covetousness is not necessarily about my life. It's about my desire. But... If we think of it as an appetite, think about what that means. Think about a physical appetite. When you think about your physical appetite, is it ever fully and finally satisfied? You can eat a big meal, you can be totally stuffed, and you're satisfied for what? A handful of hours? Handful hours later, next morning for sure, you're up, you're back through the refrigerator, you're trying to eat again. And what we need to realize is that our desire for things or desire for popularity or desire for position, anything that we would covet is in the same way an appetite that works the same way. It will never be fully and finally satisfied. You know, how many times have we said something like, you know, if I just had this, then I'll be happy. Well, when you got it, were you happy? Or we've heard other people and we've seen them chase after something It was so important to them. I mean, if I get this, then I'll be happy. And yet, when we get it, it's only a matter of weeks before we're thinking about something else. So we live in a very unique place and a time and blessing of the United States of America of having tremendous wealth and prosperity. But in the midst of that wealth and prosperity, we also live in a culture that, again, through advertising, this time of year especially, we're surrounded by messages talking about what we don't have, inviting covetousness, You know, whether it's advertisements or whether it's social media or whether it's just friendships and hearing about what they have and suddenly we realize we're behind the times, we're out of style. We just, we don't have. And and it feeds this appetite. Now, Again, when you think about this, just as we understood, it's not physical appetite when you feed it. It's only going to satisfy it for a short time. It's not going to make it go away. In fact, it actually is the opposite. Because what happens if you eat a super big meal... You know, what happens is your stomach swells. If you really eat you know, over stuff, the end result is the next day you're going to be more hungry because in a sense you swelled your stomach more and you're going to have more desire for more stuff. It doesn't satisfy. And The problem is, is that we all, because of our sin, have a natural desire for more than what we have. That's, that's why we have this commandment. If we, if we were naturally kind of wired to be satisfied with what we had, God wouldn't need to give us this commandment. But it applies to us all because we all naturally struggle with this. So to try to understand this, okay, let's think about it. We're called not to covet. And if the opposite of coveting is what? Well, coveting and discontentment are on one side. On the other side, the opposite is that we, we become content. And not only not desiring what we want to have, you know, whether people have, but when we become really content, we even become Generous and we become sharing. So to try to again understand this, let me try to kind of put the, put the whole problem is almost an equation. An equation of trying to understand these two sides of how contentment and discontentment, coveting and, and, and contentment work together. Now, I'm a, I'm a visual person, so I'm going to try to put this as a picture and hopefully this helps you even as it, it makes sense to me. So, so here's the, in a sense, the equation. Is that we have two things. We have what we want, our desires, and that's matched up with what we have. Better put that what we think we have, what we feel we have. It's not necessarily what we have, it's it's how we feel about our habit or what our possessions. Now here's the thing: is is it just simply makes sense. If what we want is at the same level or higher than what we think we have, we're going to be content. If what we have is lower than what we want, See, then we're gonna be discontent. We're gonna sit there and say, I, you know, I, I need this. It's not only that it's something that I want, but I feel like I need more to be happy. Whereas again, if, if, uh, if, what I, if, if I think that I have more than what I want, I'm, I'm gonna be content with what I have. Now, think about this, the content person, you know, they feel like they have more than what they want. You wanna know great, great illustration of a content person this time of year? Content person's really hard to shop for at Christmas. Maybe you know somebody that you sit there and what would you like? And it's not necessarily that they have a lot. What would you like for Christmas? And they come back and they say, I don't really know. You know why? Well, I, I haven't been thinking about it. And you know why the content person's hard to shop for? Because they don't think about what they don't have. They think about what they have. And, and now there may be a lot of, they may not have a lot. There may be a lot of things that if you find for them, they really would appreciate but they don't think about it because they're dwelling on the things that they have. They're more aware of what they have than what they don't have. On the other hand, you know, you have some people that they can tell you, right, I've got a list, you know, I've got kids, you know, they would mail me a list of here's, you know, here's it all, uh, you know, color coordinated and alphabetically, you know, it's like, okay, they've got the whole advertisement discontent down. See, when we look at that, what is discontent? When I'm discontent, I'm much more aware of what I want than what I have. Now, here's the problem. If this is the basic equation, all of us naturally, because of our sin nature, there's a natural inequality of discontentment. Basically, all of us are in a position naturally, apart from God, where I will want more than what I have. Why? Because I have a sin nature. In part, because God has created me for a relationship with him that's the most central part of my being. And because of sin, and that's broken off, so number one is the thing that's most satisfying to me isn't there. Number two is that our sin nature, Satan's going to always try to make good things into God things so that I'm putting too much trust, too much uh, pursuit in in things rather than in God. And when I pursue the wrong thing, what's happening is that they're never going to fulfill me. So the natural state for all of us in a sense to say that we will always naturally want more than what we have. We're always going to be in a natural state of discontentment. That's, again, why we have this commandment. That's why God tells us don't covet, because apart from, apart from God, we will always naturally fall into that. Now, what's the answer to the problem? How do we, if we naturally want more than what we have, that leads to discontent, how do we fix it? Now, the world's answer is saying the way that you do it is that if there's inequality, then work on increasing what you have. If you, if you want more than what you've got, then just increase the one side, and, uh, and again, go back to the equation. It's like, okay, here's the idea, is that if it's naturally you want more than what you have, if you just pump up this side, increase your provision, then, then if you get what you want, then you're gonna be happy. That's what advertising sells. That's what the wisdom of the world that's feeding into this, you know. Here are the things that will make you happy. Here are the things that you pursue. These are the things, if you get the right car, if you get the right vacation, if you get the right social media, if you have this, you know, this right accomplishment, if you look the right way, then you will be happy. Now there's a problem with the wisdom of the world. And that is, it never works. It sounds good, except it never works. Again, have you ever pursued something and you thought, if I get this, I'm going to be happy? Did it work? Did it fulfill you in the long run? No. Have you ever known anyone who is totally driven by something, some goal, they, you know, they're totally committed to it, they finally get it, and then they're satisfied? No, it never works. Why? Because when you look at it, the problem with the world's answer is as what we have increases, at the same time, our desires increase proportionately. It's not like, okay, well, I've got what I want, and my desires stayed the same, and what happens is that I eat more, and next thing you know, I'm desiring more. Uh, we'll always increase in proportion to our provision. And we know this by experience. We know that, again, in our life, many of us can go back and remember back when you know, we are younger, and it's like, man, if I get this, I'll be happy. And, and next thing you know, suddenly we get that, and our desires are only bigger. We, we, you know, it's only expanded, what is the next goal? This is something the Bible teaches. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He who loves money will never not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. If that's what we're looking is for things, we're never going to be satisfied. Why? Because it says in the next verse, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has, has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And basically it's saying, you know, what, here's the problem. As you get more your hunger grows. You're never going to be satisfied because as the provision grows, the desires are going to grow at the same time. You're going to have the big meal, your stomach's going to swell, and you're going to still walk out here and you're going to be satisfied. In fact, notice that he uses language of physical hunger. As as goods increase, they increase who eat them. It's eating, it's hunger, it's this physical thing. It affirms this whole idea that if, that it, that coveting will never be fully satisfied; that hunger can never be satisfied fully and finally. It's only for a short time, and our hunger returns. You know, we know this again. You want it illustrated? Okay, Thanksgiving dinner this week, right? I mean, we were, how many of us were thinking about, we're talking about, you know, man, I I mean, I love stuffing or I love, you know, people are debating what is their favorite side dish and their favorite, and they're looking forward to Thanksgiving meal and and we're longing for that. Then we go out and we have this incredible Thanksgiving meal. And I want to ask how many of you were like unbuckling a belt buckle to kind of loosen the pants so that you, you know, to make a little more comfortable. And we not only were satiated, we were overstuffed. We were filled. Now, That was wonderful, right? How many have not eaten since Thursday? I I thought you ate, you know, you were fulfilled, that's what you wanted, you you ate, shouldn't that satisfy you? No, in reality, what's happened is we've not only eaten, but our stomach's swelled up, so now we're tending to eat more and we've gotta worry about, okay, maybe I need to go on a diet because it's actually creating a problem of even greater hunger. Now, if we go back to this whole picture, what's the problem? The problem is the world's answers is every time that our, what we have increases, our desires increase at the same point. And so, if having more is never going to be a path to finding contentment, um, then where do we go? I mean, if it would be the path, wouldn't you expect America to be the most content people in the country, in the world? When I mean, we are the most prosperous country in the history of the world. But yet, as, as our prosperity has increased, there have been numerous studies that showed that as our prosperity has increased as a country, we have become less and less content. We are more and more covetous than ever before. We're dissatisfied. Why? Because we have more and more than we ever dreamed. We could have dreamed, you know, 50 years ago. But suddenly, as that has increased, so is this. So where do we go? Well, if that answer doesn't work, well, then you have another answer. Sometimes the religious answer is to say, if we can't increase what we want, if that doesn't work, Well, therefore, what we need to do is we need to try to decrease our desires. Because the whole idea is here, we need to get this equation to balance. So if I can't increase my provision, what I'm gonna try to do is to decrease my desires. So again, use the picture here, is to say, okay, if if here's the natural tendency that we have, it doesn't help to feed this. Instead, what I need to do is I need to put downward pressure here so I decrease what I want. Now, that sounds good. But the problem is, how do you do it? Do you know a way of saying, okay, I'm just going to think about, you know, I'm I'm hungry, but I'm going to think about not being hungry, and that's going to work? Does it work in a physical diet? Does it work in anything? I mean, you know, when we do this, I say it's a religious answer, because religion is always about rules, it's about self-discipline, it's about trying harder, just, you know, just do it. And that's what it is. It's like, okay, just don't think about what you want. Just you know, try to change your desires. But I'm not changing who I am. I'm not changing my desires. I'm just trying to deny them. I'm trying to not think about them. But sooner or later, the real me slips out because my heart still has the same desires as before. So in the long run, it doesn't work. So what is the right answer? See, God is concerned, again, he's about, concerned about changing our heart. And the Bible teaches us that there is an answer. In fact, it actually says in Philippians that it's, that it's a secret. There's a secret to true contentment. Now, let me go to this wonderful passage where Philippians chapter 4, where he talks about contentment, true contentment. And the secret isn't in getting more because he's talking about it. Well, no, I've, I've learned to be content when I have a bunch and when I don't have anything. It's not about that. It's not about lowering our desires. It's not about that. Look at what he says, Philippians chapter 4. This is Paul writing from prison. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, of, um, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and a need. There's a secret. And I'm basically saying, I know in times of abundance, I've been discontent. In times of abundance, I've been content. In times of need, I've been discontent and I've been content. There's a secret here. And when he says a secret, I think the idea here is a secret means something that's not obvious. It's a truth that's out there, but it's not obvious. It's not obvious to the average person. It's not just common sense. It's something that we've got to dig and that we've got to discover, but yet it's there for us to be discovered. And not only that, he says, I've learned the secret, that it's not only something I've discovered, I read this and suddenly it just made sense, but it's a truth that has to be applied, that has to be learned. And so what is that secret? Well, first of all, I believe that when you look at the whole of what he's teaching, the secret starts by saying that we learn to value the relationship with the giver over the gifts. It's not in things. Again, what does Paul say? You know, I've learned a secret in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to be abound. It's not about what I have. It's not about the gifts. It's not about the good things that God has given me. The secret is understanding that we are made for relationship with God. That that's, we were designed so that would be at the core of our being. And again, why do we struggle? Because we're, we're sinners, and in our sin, we're separated from this relationship with God. And and then by nature, we're trying to put other things in this God-shaped vacuum that God has put in our heart, and they never work. And part of the secret is recognizing that, no, God has made us for a relationship with Him. And so what I need first and foremost is a relationship with God, and if I have a relationship with God, then then. What happens is in good times or in bad times, my relationship with the giver never has changed. Now, my awareness of the gift and whether there's a lot of gift or not, that may change. But the fact is that even if I don't have a whole lot there, if I'm in the giver's hands, I know I've got all that I need. Jesus talks about the same idea. John chapter four, he talks about it in terms of hunger, a physical hunger or physical desire or Thirst. He speaks to the woman at the well and, and she's coming and talking about, you know, drawing water. And, and look what he says, John chapter four, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give, uh, give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And here he's talking about it. it's like this appetite, this physical need. And, and, you know, just like anything else, if you go to worldly things, it's going to satisfy for a little while. Why? Because it was never designed to meet the ultimate need. But I'm coming to give you the spring that is eternal, that you drink of, and it's going to satisfy you forever. In fact, then if you want to go and even see this further, she comes right after this. This woman he's talking to says, well, give me that water. I want that water. And you know what Jesus said? Okay, well, go find your husband. Go bring him to me. So well, I don't have a husband. When well, Jesus said, "Yeah, you don't have one. You've had five, and you're living with someone here now. That's not. You know what he's saying? Give me that water." And I said, he's, he's looking at her and saying, "Let's talk about what you're trying to use to fill that hunger. You're looking relationships. You're t- looking for sex. You're looking for. And okay, let's talk about that. And he goes and says, "Okay, you want to talk about what you're looking to satisfy you? Okay, you've you've been through multiple relationships, and you keep going one after another. Why? Because it isn't satisfying." you're keeping going back to the well and it's not satisfying you. Why? Because you're looking at the wrong place. No, I'm the spring that will always satisfy. And what happens is that if we understand that, when we understand that, we then put all the gifts, God wants us to enjoy gifts, but we put the gifts in the proper perspective. You see, if I'm not trusting them to be God things, then I'm able to enjoy them as good things. And when I enjoy them as good things, I'm able to enjoy them properly. But the only way to enjoy the good things as good things is to have God in the place of being the God thing, that I've put the value of the relationship over, or the relationship with the giver over the gifts. But how do we know if we have that? We all say, well, I want that. You know, one of the ways, let's go back to what what Paul said in Philippians. Circumstances reveal to the degree that this is really true. Do we value God in relationship over over the, the things that he gives? Look at what he says, for I learned to be uh, in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And basically, I know how to, to have, have be in hunger when I have lots, and I know how to have plenty when I have nothing. Now, here's what he's saying. Why is it that he talks about being brought low and abound and plenty and hunger? Here's why. Because a lot of times, it is times of ultimate blessing or ultimate need that reveals what we really value. See, I think for a lot of us, when we go through life, we're chasing after the dream, and if we get a little bit of that, we always hope that we, one day we'll get that, and then it will satisfy, and we're always, you know, we're like the horse that's chasing after the carrot that's tied right in front of us. The problem is what happens when we get it. On one hand, when we finally get what we've longed for, sometimes that can be the greatest moment of crisis in life. Because you're saying, when I get this, I'll be happy, and then you finally get it, and you realize, I'm not happy. It's, one person says, you know, it's, you climb the ladder of success, you finally get to the top, and you realize you're in the long, wrong wall. And that's the problem, is that sometimes prosperity can be a circumstance that reveals suddenly we're broken because it didn't satisfy the need, it fell short. Or a lot of times it can be when we're in crisis, why? Because so, I'm chasing after, I need this to be happy, and suddenly when, I, when that dream is crashed, suddenly when I realize I'm not gonna get what I want, suddenly the thing that I think is going to satisfy me when it isn't, the hope of it isn't there anymore, suddenly it destroys us. And here's what God's saying. Again, if you want to understand that we, contentment is found in relationship with the giver. And if I have the giver, even when I perceive that these gifts may be taken away, I still have the giver. And when I'm given plenty, I still have the giver. And the fact is, is that that will satisfy me. But if you're here and you're in a moment of crisis and whether it's a crisis when it seems like everything is being taken away and you don't know how you're gonna survive and how you're gonna make it through, or even if you're in a moment of crisis of some, something may be great and suddenly you're struggling, my marriage isn't working, my family isn't working, this isn't working. Maybe God's trying to get your attention and saying you're chasing after the wrong things and if you chase after the wrong things, it will never satisfy. You're trying to drink water that is always gonna leave you thirsty again. Start with a relationship with God. Not only that, but then we come back and you say, that's where it starts. But it's also going deeper within that and recognizing that God wants us to nurture a heart of thanksgiving. Now, Again, if you read the verses right there, what does it say? It says, you know, I learned the secret. And it's like, okay, then, and I was studying this and I was like, well, what is the secret? What, and I keep reading the verses after it and I said, I don't He says he's learned the secret, but he's not describing how he learned it or what it is. And and then I realized that I'm reading ahead and that was wrong. What I needed to do is read the verses right before it because he described the secret. Right before. And what is the secret? Let me, I'm going to put these verses up in a minute, but let me read Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say. Again, I say rejoice. Verse six. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What it's saying is, be thankful. Think about what you have to be thankful for. Why? Because thankfulness isn't just a thing that I do. It literally has the power to reshape my heart. You see, I can't stop myself from desiring things. I can't push down my desire but the answer isn't focusing on trying to stop my heart or to change it or to focus on it isn't focusing on sin. It's about becoming righteous about letting God change who I am. I can't make myself stop desiring, but what I can do is foster a spirit of thanksgiving. Again, let's go back to the picture. We talked about the problem is that this you know uh, covenanting contentment equation, and, and naturally we always naturally want more than what we have. That's our sin nature. And it doesn't work to try to get more. It doesn't work to try to push down and desire less. Here's the third option. Here's what he's teaching. is that if we have a spirit of thanksgiving, the spirit of thanksgiving is almost something like pouring water on rice, where it just expands. Because the issue is not what we have. The issue is our awareness and perception of what we have. See, I can have a whole bunch and think that I don't have anything. And when I have a spirit of thanksgiving, what I realize is suddenly, I realize that I have way more than I ever dreamed. And so that I'm not having more and I'm not desiring less, but I'm thankful for what I have and suddenly I'm overwhelmed with, God, here's your provision, I thank you for that. And so suddenly I have more, it expands that and I'm willing to give, I have a spirit of generosity instead of coveting. But how do we get there? Well, let's go back to Philippians. Let's what he says. Let's see the verses right there. First of all, we need to understand the transformative power of speech. Many times in scripture, it talks about how speech reveals our heart. You want to know what's in your heart? Look at what you say. It shows who you are. But it also changes us. When we say things, it actually changes us. It has the power to change us, to transform us. That's why praise is so important. That's why worship is important. That's why we worship God. Because when we sing these truths, it makes it more real to us. So look at Philippians 4.4. 4. What does it say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not only thinking, it's verbalizing. Think about something you have to be thankful for and say it. Rejoice. It's not just a rule, but God is saying, I want you to try to develop the spirit where you think and verbalize. Why? Because when you say it, it's going to start to reshape your heart. It's going to start to shape you into this person. It's pouring water around the rice, in a sense, letting it expand. But you might say, but but I don't, you know, you don't understand my life. There's a lot of things that aren't good, and there's a lot of problems and and trials, and and you're just telling me to ignore those. And okay, let's continue the next verse. Because what it tells us is that, no, be real with your concerns, pray to God about your concerns, but bracket those prayers with praise and thanksgiving. Now, let's go to what he says. Now, again, remember, remember as he's writing this, Paul is not in a great place. He's in prison. He's been in prison for four years. He's awaiting trial that might result in his execution. He's got a lot of opposition. He's got all kinds of problems. He's not in a great place. So he's writing this from personal perspective. This is what he learned to do. This is the secret. He says, you're going to be real about, it's not just looking at the good, be real about the problems, but how do we come to God? Verse verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to know God. Bring them to God. Talk to God about them. Be real about your hurts and your concerns. But when you do it, surround it by prayer and thanksgiving. What is prayer? It's praise. Now, here's the problem. is a lot of times, we're na- nature is we have a problem. God, I've got this problem. I've got to tell you, man, I've, I'm so worried about this. I'm worried about my family member. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about, you know, COVID. I'm worried about politics. I'm worried about, and we go and we, t- we spend all our time telling God, here's my prayer list. God, you think you can handle it? Because my ultimate reality now is my problems. And I'm trying to find God through the problem. And here's what God is saying. There's power in praise and thanksgiving. Now, if I come to God and I surround my petition with praise, I'm going to come to God and I'm going to say, God, i praise you for who you are. God, you're the creator of all things. You're the one who spoke into existence all creation. You're the one who created me. You know every detail of my heart. You know every, every cell of my body, every hair of my head, if I had any. Uh, God, you know all things. You know, you are in charge of all things in the world that you hold the stars in, in, in your hand. God, you are all powerful. I praise you for your heart, and I praise you and thank you for your love. I thank you for sending Jesus. God, I thank you for all the way that you've, con- in fact, if I look throughout my life, you have always been there for me. You have never let me down. Not only that, you've never let down any of your followers in Christ. God, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your provision. And I've got a problem. you think you can handle it? You see, it changes things. See, it's natural for us to just think about the problems, but he says, okay, yeah, be real with that. But realize there's power in praise. And surround your prayers with praise and thanksgiving because it's going to change the way that you even bring those problems before God. And then when you do, talk about those things, but don't dwell on them. Instead, he calls us to focus on the good. Focus on the things that, that God is doing, on, on God's provision. And on God, on, on, um, here we go, on, on, on the good that God is doing. And again, look at uh, Philippians 4.8. Now, again, remember, there's a lot going on in Paul's life that isn't good. He's in prison. He's got people opposing him. There's a lot for him to be worried about, a lot to be stressed about. But look at what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Basically, there's a lot of stuff in life that isn't that. And it's not that you ignore it, but don't dwell on it. Make the choice to dwell on those things. Make the choice to think about those things. Because when you make the choice to think about those things, it reshapes your heart. So you're not only thinking about it, but then you're vocalizing it, rejoicing in the Lord always. And then what happens? It's suddenly discovered. Then you discover this secret of contentment. The secret of living in joy, whether lives are good or bad, whether you have plenty or want. Just in closing, let me just challenge you. What's this look like? What can you do this week? Well, I just, it's something we understand, but it's a secret to be learned, meaning to put into practice. So, So can you think of something specific that you can do this week to foster a spirit of thanksgiving? We had Thanksgiving dinner. Well, what can you do on a daily basis? How can you foster that daily? And if you don't have any ideas, let me give you just one simple one, all right? Okay, this week, every day, take a few minutes and think of five things that you're thankful for and share with others. Just think of, not only think of it, but then because there's power of, of, of verbalizing, every day say, okay, I'm going to think of these things. I'm gonna, and, and I'm going to tell somebody, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for you. Five things each day. And I, I'll tell you, try it. Try this week. Make sure, write down, say it five times. And then come to me next Sunday and tell me how it impacted you. I bet you you come with a little bit more smile than you came in this week because it changes us. See, this is something that's, that isn't a simple command, it's a foundational truth that reflects the way that God has created us. And the more that we live in light of this truth, the more that we discover the joy that God has created us to live in. Let's just, this week, not just think about Thanksgiving, what we did in the past, this one day of the week or the year but they have the spirit of thanksgiving and let god change us from the inside out so it's not just even about trying to not covet but literally be a different person as god changes our heart